you absolutely have to pay attention. You absolutely have to be present. And there's a, there's a degree of figuring out. So yes, if you're doing a mobility flow that you've done a thousand times before, well, again, there's a program for that. So it's not going to have the same effect, but if you can introduce some kind of novelty, if you can mix up the order, if you can change the range of movement, if you can increase the degree of difficulty, or if you can just, if you can go with a completely different movement that you're going to try and break down, it's not about actually achieving the mobility flow. It's not about actually you know, mastering this new, this new flow. So for that reason, you could start with one particular routine and you might work with it a hundred times before you've got it nailed, but your brain's going to have to pay attention to a higher, to, to a higher level every single time. That's an amazing warm up. That was Scott Robinson. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're curious what one of my top five paradigm shifts has been in training and performance the last few years, one answer of those might surprise you. One of those shifts has been uh, moving to herbalism and herbal supplementation as an important part of my total health and performance regimen. You could say I got into it much in the same way I got into perception and reaction-based agility work instead of emphasizing canned, coned, and ladder-based agility work or 505s or pro-agilities. And that was really through being open-minded and making a shift towards natural methods, organic methods versus more manufactured methods and, and ideas. And after really years of drinking way too much caffeine, taking too much pre-workout and seeing my uh, ability to harness adrenaline suffer as a result, amongst other reasons, I gave herbalism a shot uh, and specifically through the herbs of Lost Empire Herbs. Uh, I replaced all but creatine in my supplementation routine. From my first dosage of, uh, it was the Phoenix formula, it was my first herb I used, I noticed substantial results immediately. I saw improvements in my strength and power outputs. And you'll see other coaches who also will recommend herbs for performance, things like Shiliagit. And Logan Christopher, CEO of the company, calls what they do performance herbalism, which means they focus on herbs that are so potent and powerful, that means you feel a difference when you take them. This isn't like the Jinko Biloba, the low-grade herbs you're seeing in capsule form at the local drugstore. These are performance herbs. They're 100% natural with no additives, chemicals, or colorings, and you can get extensive information on each herb or formula you purchase there. Lost Empire Herbs offers a 365-day money-back guarantee, so you can get these herbs virtually risk-free. They're founded by three brothers interested in athletic performance, and I'm really happy to have Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show. So if you're interested in the product and some of the products specifically that I use in my own training and performance regimen, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly to check out those herbs and get 15% off your purchase. So again, head on over to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly for 15% off. All right, let's get on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the show. It's great to have you here. A really crucial element that defines uh, mastery in one's sport, one's movement practice, is a mastery of one's mental and emotional state. And the mind, uh, our emotions, associated neurology, it is uh, a critically important part of the training process. Our guest today is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all things mind, brain, body, and the nervous system, and that is Scott Robinson. Scott is an applied movement neurology master practitioner. He's been a multi-time guest on this podcast, and Scott himself has skin in the game as a former Taekwondo athlete uh, with many years of experience training and managing both the physical and neurological aspects 
of performance. For today's podcast, Scott will be talking about the power of self-affirmation and mental reinforcement in the roles of both training and the rehab process, and he'll also be getting into the role of novelty within both affirmations and then training itself. Scott will also get into visual training methods and how that links with physical training outputs. He'll chat about warm-up methods that can improve the neurological quality and the learning quality of the session. He'll be talking about how we work with our subconscious mind, the placebo effect in training, and much more. I'm excited to get you guys this podcast. Let's get to it. Episode 353. Scott, it's great to have you back on the show, man. Thanks for being here. Uh, Joel, this is awesome. Repeat invite. Uh, the repeat, repeat invite. Very, very excited to get, to, to get going with this one. Yeah, as I, as I mentioned before we push record, like even just thinking about the celebration element and the neurology stuff behind it and, and all those principles, like even while you know, thinking about like the Rocky movies and montages and him celebrating you know, at the top of the stairs. Like I, I see that when you, I've heard that from you, I see it all over the place. So I'm sure I'll have a lot of things that I'll be seeing as well after this, um, this recording is done. But, you know, let's kick it off by, I saw a video and I think this was a few years ago, but you had a shoulder injury and it's always interesting, mm-hmm. right? Like the personal anecdotes, because I'm really curious what some principles that you used in rehabbing your shoulder were and how you either conventional or unconventional. Tell me a little bit about that and how you rehabbed it back. Yeah, awesome. It was a process and it was it was a great, it was a fantastic learning journey, fantastic learning opportunity in the end. So, and yeah, there were some unconventional things that I may struggle to describe here, but there was a few things that I can give away that were really helpful and can make a big difference. So, just kind of in 25 words or less, I did a big injury doing mountain biking with my little boy and I went over a jump that I was really not anticipating I was going to go over at the speed that I was happy to be you know I was I was rolling at and long story short the the front shocks compressed before as I went into the jump they didn't decompress and I literally did a forward somersault in the air so un- unplanned but the interesting thing was and I guess working on the level that I work I had this awareness that Mind knew what was going on before it even happened. And I'd had the intuition that something was going to happen and I checked in with it and I'd kind of got the intuition came back, stay on the bike, just stay on the bike, don't bail, don't jump, just, and everything slowed down. As soon as I went into the air and started rotating, I was like, realized, okay, this is not good. But then I realized, oh no, stay on the bike, stay on the bike, stay on the bike. And then when I got to a certain point in the rotation, then I realized, Okay, now it's time to now it's time to dive, and I sort of went and did a forward board somersault, did a did a forward roll, landed, and my first thought when I hit the ground was that could have been so much worse. That that was really close to being something really really bad. So the, you know, even though I injured myself quite quite seriously, I was really aware this could have been so much worse than what actually just happened. So I was feeling kind of grateful straight away. And so what had happened was I dislocated my shoulder. I, I did a near complete rupture of my AC joint and I broke two ribs. And the first thing that happened, I'd, so I was unaware of what it, it actually fully transpired, but all these kids came over and were checking, you're okay, you're all right. And, and I jumped up and kind of just, you know, the first words out of my, out of my mouth were positive. Just were like, yeah, no, guys, best day of my life. <laughs> Having a great time here. And I and then I also felt really grateful that my little boy didn't see it. He was further off down the track, and so when he came up, you know, same thing. He said, "Like, Dad, are you all right?" And the first words that came out when I said when I saw him was, "I am fine." And it just took my mind to, okay, the real me, the true me, that whatever that is, the infinite self, that that's fine. He's great. He's having a great time. Like, <laughs> you know, this physical body's not in great shape at the moment, but the real me, nothing's changed. And I. 
straight away thought, well, that'd be a better place to be. I've never explored that. I've never tried that, but that'd be a better place to be than here right now. So I just took my mind to that. But like, let's just go to see if I can find that I am. Where's the where's the true self? Because that's changeless. That hasn't changed at all. Still perfect. And instantly the pain sort of started to go down. And I noticed that my I noticed that my shoulder was moving strangely. I didn't realize it was dislocated, but I just thought, okay, we need to go into rehab straight away because people tend to stick their arm in a sling and immobilize the joint. I thought, no, it just wants movement. It's like I'm aware of that. So I just started doing controlled articular rotations, really small ones, just small little rotations, you know, with my arm by my side. And I relocated the joint. I like I was unaware that it was like it was was pulling really elliptically and there was some strange forces going on that I was really unfamiliar with. But I, I just I held a little drink bottle and it literally relocated. But I think that only happened because I was still so relaxed and just, you know, in this calm and kind of grateful state that, you know, my system didn't lock up. So I, that was the first step that really it, it shouldn't have changed that way, but it but it did because I was able to maintain these emotions and just kind of feel at peace, feel, feel calm with it. So then the, the recommendation was surgery. The recommendation was, was that it was going to be kind of six months to get back to any kind of normality really, you know, and when I was told that, I instantly thought, okay, handstands in four weeks sounds like a good goal. Like let's, <laughs> let's aim for that. So I, I followed my process and I absolutely got there. So for, handstands in four weeks and, you know, and then it's just been really, I mean, it, it shouldn't, be doing the things that it can do. You know, I was into handstand push-ups, you know, and doing like had a greater output of strength in probably three months, you know, than what I'd had before the injury, you know, and that, which that shouldn't be the case. But the things that I did was all of those holding gratitude throughout the process. That was really, that was really big, continuing to see it as a, as a positive, you know, all the way through, you know, looking for the, looking for like, where's the upside? Where's the learning opportunity? Where's the growth opportunity? Like, where's the, What's this pointing me to at a deeper level in healing? All of that kind of stuff. But then throughout the process, just making sure that I was keeping the neurology, keeping the, the whole system fired up and, and stimulated and looking to make new connections around this, you know, around the, around the musculature, around everything around that joint. And so I was obviously having to do therape- therapeutic exercises and whatnot as well, but doing things like putting the shoulder in unstable position. So putting it up into full flexion. So arm up above your head and then holding little weights there and, you know, doing like bottom up kettlebell work, but integrating neurology, like functional neurology with that. So integrating eye movements, integrating infinity circles. So an infinity circle, if you're not, not aware what that is, that's literally just putting two markers on the ground and then walking in an infinity symbol around that. But while you do that, you hold your eyes on a, on a visual target. And so while you're walking, your eyes are literally having to track back and forth to maintain a stable gaze. And so if you do that while you're performing physical exercises, well, you can drive an increased benefit. So that was one of the things that I did. And I kind of did that religiously, different variations, different forms of that in warm up kind of every time. And that was, that was really important. And then even doing all the controlled articular rotations through the spine, sort of literally trying to make the, make sure that the spine is literally all, all the signals that are going through the through the spine are fired up and and activated and the system's alive and the system's awake and it's just it's looking for more you know so looking to try and make sure that the system's looking for more each time and then so in between exercises and we might touch on this now or later but in between exercises most people work towards filler exercises they're doing a squat or doing a bench press then they'll go and do a filler exercise where they might go and do some abdominals or something so my filler exercises were all the kinds of activities that were going to drive 
increase attention, drive to increase alertness, drive increase urgency in what I was doing, which then sets the stage for neuroplasticity. So that when you come back to the strength exercises or whatever it is that you're doing, then the brain's looking to make new connections. You, you've set the state, you've set the state of mind and all learning, all, all activities, whatever you do, it's all state dependent. If you want to get the very best out of yourself in anything, in sport, intellectually, in whatever facet of life, it's state dependent. So you would need to set the state of being in the mind. You need to set the conditions in the mind or in the brain so that you can actually get the very best result. And so I just paid attention to that. There were a couple of things that I really paid attention to and I think they made, they made a really big difference. Yeah, I know a couple, my, my mind kind of put together a couple of your answers or combined them in the sense of, you talked about, uh, like, I feel fine, like right when you had the bike bicycle crash. And it's, it's funny too, my, my, um, my brother just like one year ago separated his shoulder <laughs> mountain biking. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm sure that, that very common for that, um, that activity. But you had said a couple of things. Yeah, that I feel fine. And I met, that brought me to, um, there's a DJ I like who goes by Akira the Dawn and he remixes like, like people like Jocko Willick. And one of the remixes, I'll, shoot, I'll put it in the show notes for this. But it's, <laughs> it's literally like Jocko talking about this Navy SEAL training where, and I think people have mixed opinions on, you know, sport and Navy SEAL training and the, you know, what's the specificity. But I do think in terms of a general mental I- idea, I think this is awesome because I would totally use this if I worked with like a tough sport like cross country or swimming. But he would, they would do like a really difficult exercise underwater where you could barely breathe as, mm-hmm. you know, seals do. And he said that when you come up, you had to say, I feel fine. <laughs> and the song that Akira did was actually um, called I Feel Fine. <laughs> and so, yeah, it just had me thinking about that. And then you were talking about the infinity walks, which I think a lot of people here know, uh, strength coach Cal Dietz calls it the goat drill, where you do like, kind of like a, a walk or like basically you could do like a run too, like you're running around the infinity loop, but your eyes are fixed, like you just said. And so I was mm-hmm. thinking, well, what if you did if you combine those and you're doing the infinity runs while saying, I feel fine, the same time. But uh, did you, where did you actually, I'm curious where that, um, where you got that from that, um, that infinity loop. Uh, Cause it seems like it's a universal thing. Yeah. So look, it's a, it's, it's a, a functional neurology drill. And so I learned it through applied movement neurology. So the Academy of Applied Movement Neurology, and it's in their level one course. And, and I didn't understand it at the time. And now I understand. And so one of the things that I paid attention to is depending on the eye position, and this is something that's really not well known, but it's happy to give it out there, is depending on the eye position, because your, your extraocular function, the eye, eye position literally drives neuromuscular activity. But depending on the eye position that you use, you can target specific fibers. And mm. so I was just making sure I was paying attention to all fibers as I was, as I was doing these drills. And it went really, really well. It's interesting you say that with the, you know, I am fine or I feel fine. And using the water example, because I actually use that to a different context and I use that in thought with people. And so I'm always saying to people, people, a lot of people deal with overthinking, deal with anxiety. People say they can't meditate, can't hold thought, can't hold focus. And, you know, that's a problem for athletes as well. And I always use the example with people and say, you would know right now, you could dive into a swimming pool, jump into it, into the ocean, and you could sit on the bottom of the ocean or the bottom of that swimming pool and it wouldn't be long. It'd be a period of one minute, two minutes, maybe three minutes if you've got a good breath hold. But you would get to a point, you will absolutely know this, that you would get to a point where absolutely nothing else matters. Absolutely nothing else matters. There's not a single thought in your mind other than air. Like, I just need air. That's the most important thing. And once you recognize that, well, then you just know that you can do that. You know that you wouldn't actually need the water to do that. You could just do that because you know that that's what would happen. And when you stack something like a positive stimulus, like a thought, like I am fine, 
on top of that, well, you're in a moment where you're actually suggestible because there's no mm. other thought in your mind. So what you're describing is potentially this moment where there's no other thought in your mind, but the one thought you're putting in is I am fine. And that's potentially a really powerful thing. That's potentially if you can reach the subconscious that way, well, then you know, you're taking your, your pain tolerance right up. You're taking, you're taking your, your tolerance for suffering right up because you, you, you're instilling this belief deep in the subconscious that you're okay. You know, that, yeah, it hurts. It's uncomfortable, but no, we're good, which means you can still perform and you can stay there longer than other people. So it's potentially a really valuable way to go about it. The SEALs might be onto something. Yeah. I've been uh, like not actually writing the workouts cross country coach. I was just a stopwatch holder like 15 years ago when I was first starting out <laughs> in track and field. I was also the assistant cross country coach, but it would be fun to, if I actually wrote the workouts, I would love to do like a, like a repeat 400s for distance runners. But after every one, they have to say like, I feel fine or something like that. Or, you know, just some kind uh, of information. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe not every single practice, but just try something like that at some point. I, I think sometimes there's those, uh, you know, people, don't sometimes they don't pay credence to how much like the mental emotional or environmental factors matter until you actually do a workout where those things are mm. present and it, it makes me think too about like maybe i've mentioned it on this podcast with you but tony holler the sprint coach track coach he has like a gauntlet 40 yard dash and this is kind of getting a little bit off the topic but he'll have people just for the sake of the mental health people line the track and cheer for the person running the 40 yard dash and mm. a massive amount of guys will set personal bests or get really close oh, and um, some guys will set personal bests by a lot and they only do that a few times a year because it's it won't be special if you do it every single mm -hmm. time you know and it's probably pretty intense for the body to if you do set such a big pr but all that to say is i do think that you know having those it'd be kind of cool to have like a day that was based off of that like kind of self-reinforcement just and i'm always thinking too of like conventional training you know as as opposed to rehab but it all is the same it's all runs on the same spectrum there's not like there's a huge separator between these things yeah look it ties back to what you're saying with the celebration as well so it doesn't i don't think it necessarily matters whether it's a it's whatever's going to be it's whatever's going to be most impactful for your neurology whatever's going to be most impactful for your mind and that will vary so some people it could be saying an affirmation some people a bit of fist pump some people be jumping up and down and punching the air you know some people it'll be doing a high five with a teammate or having a hug or whatever it is but you know you could be in that most intense moment of training you know where you're just you're absolutely just destroyed by the set that the coach has just given you but you know if you grit your teeth and you clench your fist and just like come on like you know did that like that's amazing. That's, you know, and, but the key to some extent has to be novelty because mm. as you, exactly as you say, you could line the track with a, with a whole, a large crowd of people screaming at it. That'd be amazing. But part of the reason that what that makes it such a powerful stimulus is it's novel. Yeah. It's not there every day, you know? And so then, yeah, you're really paying attention to it. And then there's this whole thing of, well, I don't want to let these people down. And, you know, and yes, I'm drawing off the energy. There's, there's multi-layered, there'd be multi-layered effects that are, that are beneficial, but Pay attention to the novelty. And I think we've talked about this before as well. That that novelty, I mean, the brain pays attention to novel stimuli. So, you know, don't don't go with the same celebration over and over again. Mix it up, you know, involve other people, you know, to change it from words to actions, change it from, you know, actions to emotions and, and back again, you know, just keep playing with it. And, and even if you don't feel like you've got the right one, your brain's still looking at it going, what was that? What was that yeah. about? Okay. And it's, look, it's recording a positive stimulus. It's, it's, it's paying attention and the only brain that changed itself is the brain that's paying attention. So novelty's key. Yeah, yeah. I remember back to I think that was our very first podcast together. And in the time being, uh, I think Nick Nick Winkleman, uh, who's uh, big in motor learning, had said that as well. And so it is kind of funny. I'll I'll hear you say it, and then I'm 
I'm thinking about it for a while. And then I heard Nick say it. And I forgot, actually, that you had said it a while ago on this. But it's, yeah, that <laughs> novelty and, and uh, attention is so huge. And it does, yeah, it does make me think about, like, yeah, if you find, like, a workout that's that has some special elements to it, like, you leave it to be special, you know, like that. Otherwise, it will lose that. Yeah, you lose novelty. And it just, everything kind of goes downhill from there. So, I was going to ask you as well, Scott, about... In the same vein of things, I think uh, maybe along the lines of um, at least the neurology infinity movements, uh, and then moving a little bit into skill acquisition. I'm curious as to like if you were trying to learn a skill like a handstand or or just anything really, what are some categories or uh, qualities that are particularly good for like warming up to learn something? Uh, I mean, I guess novelty to drive attention, but outside of novelty. Uh, if you're learning up or warming up or going through the process of learning a skill, what are some really helpful elements to have in there to assist your process of learning that skill? So, something along the lines of like, mobility flow. You've, you've seen people do these really beautiful, you know, mobility flow movements where they're getting their body into all these kinds of crazy positions that, you know, all pushing through end ranges of movement a lot of the time and and really difficult to coordinate from one position to the next. And so if you, and you can search up mobility flow, or you can look at mobility sequencing. And if you look at some different routines and the amazing thing to me, because I would use this a lot when I was kind of on the, you know, on the gym floor with clients and it is literally like, it is the correlation. It is quite an amazing thing to do. And it, we tap on probably my, my favorite brain area. And you say, you know, you're a geek when you've got a favorite brain area, <laughs> but you know, it, we, we tap on the supplementary motor cortex because you have this area within your premotor cortex which literally puts together it pulls together all the parts of the system so it put, pulls together all the parts of the brain all the parts of the body that are going to be required to be able to figure out what the motor plan is going to be and so when you look at little kids and who are just jumping on the swings jumping on the monkey bars just running and playing and doing a different game every single day at lunchtime when you go and give them some complex pattern they look at you demonstrate and go oh yeah okay sweet and then just go and do it and then you give that to a 50-something-year-old individual and when you get up from your demonstration, they're literally looking at you just going, I don't even know what I just saw. Like, I can't. That, that literally makes no sense to me. And they're literally looking at you, so, like, describing, that's a foreign language in movement. Like, I, I, didn't, I don't even know where to start. Like, I can't even remember what you did. And, like, the brain's not computing because they haven't been paying attention to that novelty and they haven't been using their brain in a way where the brain's been having to figure out, okay, what different parts of the system am I going to have to put together here to be able to formulate this new motor plan? So mobility sequencing or mobility flow, those exercises are amazing because you absolutely have to pay attention. You absolutely have to be present and there's a, there's a degree of figuring out. So yes, if you're doing a mobility flow that you've done a thousand times before, well, again, there's a program for that. So it's not going to have the same effect. But if you can introduce some kind of novelty, if you can mix up the order, if you can change the range of movement, if you can increase the degree of difficulty, or if you can just, if you can go with a completely different movement that you're going to try and break down, it's not about actually achieving the mobility flow. It's not about actually, you know, mastering this new, this new flow. So for that reason, you could start with one particular routine and you might work with it a hundred times before you've got it nailed, but your brain's going to have to pay attention to a higher, to a higher level every single time. That's an amazing warm up, you know, and then you're pushing through end ranges of movement. You're activating strength at, at all these end ranges of movement. So it's ticking a lot of boxes, but ultimately you're turning the brain on. You're making, you're telling it, this is how we're going to work. You're going to have to pay attention to this. And then hopefully if you do it right at no point during that, during your training session, 
is your brain switching off and just going, oh, yeah, 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 the squat pattern. No, no, I've got a program for this. I know what to do with that one. And then it just runs the autopilot and you get the same result that you do every time. When the brain's paying attention and trying to figure it out, when you go to that squat, and it's like, okay, what am I doing here? How do I do that? And it's literally trying to figure out what it needs to put together to execute the best possible squat. Well, it's going to recruit more muscle mass. It's going to drive more, more ele- electrochemical signals towards firing the muscles that, that need to be fired. And you can get a greater output. You can get a you can get an improved result. So I really like that stuff. And it's so simple and it's so cool because you can get one pattern and you might use it for you know weeks and weeks and weeks before you need to find a new pattern because it just might take that long to master it. Yeah, that's interesting um, with the mobility. For me, I've had experiences and uh, Stefan Jones, who's like a cricket fastballing coach who's been on this podcast several times, has talked about maybe on this show that. Uh, and he was talking about it more, I think, on the level of the muscle spindles, but it was something to the tune of go- getting in a stretch range and stre- engaging like the muscle spindle length. They're basically just getting in a stretch range, couldn't improve your skill, like acquisition or ability. And I was like, huh, and when I first had heard him say that. And then I remember there was a time stretch. I, I think it's it might have been when COVID happened and I was doing a lot more body weight training and I was doing a lot of like ISO push-up holds. So, just mm. getting in a stretch range position, holding push-ups for a long time. And then I remember one day, I just decided to go into a handstand, which and a skill I wasn't great at. And I remember the first time I went up into it, I was like, I held it extremely well, like way better than I would have typically. And I was like, huh. And I was thinking about what Stefan said and then, you know, what you're saying there. And there's another warm-up that uh, sequence that I've done that includes like an isometric lunge hold. So, you get into like a stretch range lunge for a long time. And there's a lot of things going on there within that. And then I remember there was one day in the gym, actually, we had every athlete that walked in, we just had them do this warm up, just because I guess that was the thing that day I had this idea. I was like, all right, we're all going to do this. And every, and we had the sprint gates out and literally every athlete that did this warm up set us either set a sprint PR or got really close to it and was able to repeat their best sprint, like, like very consistently. And it was lunch holding then some altitude, a version of altitude drops and a particular amount of that. And, um, yeah, I just I I've always kind of wondered. I always wonder like what exactly does that lunge do? There's some muscle energetic stuff. There's some you know it's still and there's an attention type thing. There's maybe some muscle temperature when you hold it long enough. Uh, you know there's and but I think the stretch also has something to do with it. And yeah, it's just it's really interesting that you say that because it kind of also puts another sense of clarity on that. And I I really do like using that for the warm up. And I think about novelty too, because that it is a tough type movement. And you do it like, you know, the, the first time everyone set a PR, the the 15th time people are like, oh, I got to hold this again. You know, you got <laughs> to think about a little way to drive attention, make it novel within there, or maybe the drops or something like that. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I definitely have seen that in action for sure. Yeah, there's a few things with it. And, and I like that stuff too, but it's exactly the same thing. What you're doing when you say, okay, when you're paying attention, you're getting into a, getting to a stretch range. So you're at end range of movement. Any level of muscle activity, uh, your brain's already paying attention. Your brain's paying attention to this new range, trying to figure it out, right? And any level of muscle activation you can get in that new range, well, the stronger you are at end range, well, that's going to increase strength at mid range because the further away from end range you are, you get, the stronger you get, right? So that point where you're at the midpoint between two end ranges of movement, that's, that's like, that's your sweet spot. That's where you're typically going to be in the zone where you're going to be strongest. Now, if you can, if you can increase strength at end ranges, you're literally increasing strength in at, at mid range. Now, for that to happen, your brain's paying attention. Your brain's mm. figuring it out, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, hang on, I've got more that I can do here. And so, yeah, you're layering that, like you're layering those things together. And and 
again, in neurology, anything that, that you can do that's a, an effective level of stacking, so neurologic stacking neurologic stimuli, then, yeah, you're improving things. You're literally potentiating the drill. And so that's, that's kind of what you're looking at, what you're talking about. Today's episode is also brought to you by Exogen Wearable Resistance by Lila. Everyone is familiar with the resistance brought by weighted vests or sleds, and Exogen takes wearable resistance to the next level by using a set of sleeves throughout the body and microweights to literally create a resistance training experience that is as if it is a second skin. A creative coach can use this to a huge capacity, such as using it asymmetrically to improve one's maximal sprint ability. You can assist or resist key movements. It's been used by many coaches who have appeared on this podcast. It's a favorite training tool of mine, and you can learn more about it by heading to lilateam.com. That's L-I-L-A-team.com. And you can use the code JFS2023 to grab 15% off your order at checkout. It's an amazing piece of training equipment, and I really hope you get a chance to experience it. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I know. I think our first podcast, you know, thinking back to it, the novelty, I think you probably had mentioned that there as well. And so if I was stacking some things and I'm getting ready for a skill, I'd be stacking like some sort of mobility flow. And I think the flow, right, too, there's novelty within the flow. So it's like you have mobility, you have a level of novelty. Is there anything else that you would put in there if you were making like a list? And I think you probably mentioned yeah. a few of them. But if you were to look, yeah. kind of formally list off those things. Yeah, there's a couple of drills. So, look, as I said, the extraocular function. So, visual motor drills are really powerful. So, basically making your eyes do funny things. Mm. And so, you can just work with saccadic movement. And so, saccadic eye movement is just rapid eye movement. And so, the, the classic is two, if you've never done this before, then two simple ones to pay attention to are just horizontal saccades. So, just your eyes flicking back and forth from mm. left to right, left to right. But you're looking at a target. So, you could hold your two thumbs up in front and you could flick your eyes back and forth between those thumbs. Or you could do that vertically. And one of those, the horizontal one, is going to fire up typically in large groups, so it's less specific, but you're going to fire up more of your extensor chain musculature and the vertical one, you're going to fire up more of your flexor chain musculature. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big fan. I'll do this with my little boy who's an athlete as well. So we'll do those same sorts of things where he'll be in a lunge hold or he'll be in, in a specific position and we'll stack visual motor drills on top of that. You know, So I'm a big fan of those ones. I'm a big fan of stacking together controlled articular rotation through the spine typically, mm -hmm. and, and more so the cervical spine because with the cervical spine then you can really drive the the extraocular function harder and so you're doing a controlled articular rotation with the spine which is basically just rolling your head all yeah. in a full circle all the way around your neck but again with you're adding increased increased activation increased activation of the of the musculature and you're just trying to do it smoothly and really precisely and then hold a visual target because when you do that then essentially what you're doing is you're literally holding a stable gaze while you're rolling your head around, which means your eyes have to roll all the way around in your, in your head, which is a, it's a one, one name for that is a big eye circle. So you can do a big eye circle, which is following a visual target and following your eyes all around. Like you can take your finger in front of your face, make a big circle with that finger. And as your finger goes around making that big circle, your eyes have to track the finger. Or you could simply just pick a visual target and then roll your head around. And as the head rolls around, those eyes holding that visual target, they're going to make that big circle. So you can stack that together. You could do that while you're in the lunge, but you could, so you could be in the, in that, in that lunge. And if you can hold your balance and again, it will take some practice. Again, you get to really pay attention to be able to do it because you're going to throw the vestibular system off as you start to roll the head around. But again, you, then you're driving the vestibular system as well. So there's all these things that you can add that you can stack. 
I just start small. Just start adding one thing at a time. Don't sort of dive in and add, add all four or five. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, just do everything at once. Yeah, it'll <laughs> a little good, more is better. How much of that do you think? Because I, I think about this a lot. I always think about like what happens in a game. Like if I, I remember the highest I did a standing vertical jump was actually after a game of racquetball of all things. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it was a good warm up, and I, you know, all like the the all the, the little quick movements and things like that. But I also think about how the eyes move in sport is amongst other things like obviously it's community based you're competing there's problem solving like there's all sorts of like interesting things that are happening that are improving the athlete's state in doing that that make sports like if you're going to do a vertical or a 20-yard dash or something warming up with a sport is absolutely amazing and i wonder about the eye component of that and I was going to ask you if there's any drills you could do, like a tennis ball. Like I, I remember, um, actually, it was just recently, Brady Volmering, uh, Dak Baseball, he was on the show a little while ago. I saw him doing a warm-up drill of some sort where he had like two tennis balls or lacrosse balls. And was the, his game was basically just keep them, uh, I think they each got one bounce You and then you had to throw it back up in the air. And then you'd, one would get one bounce and you'd throw it back up. And so you're always like looking left to right, moving left to right. That being said, do you have any, you know, outside of um, like the like the lunge, saccades, things like that, are there any adaptations you could use with like a ball or juggling or, or yep, gameplay? Awesome. Yeah, gameplay. Yeah. Let me know or tell me about that. Yeah, I'll do I'll do something similar. And so same thing. Think with the sports. Like if you're in if you're in a ball sport, baseball, football, you gotta try and catch if you gotta catch a moving target and you're moving yourself, which is what happens in sports. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're moving, then your system, your system is bouncing up and down and moving around. Now, you being able to catch that ball depends largely on how stable you can hold that target. How, how, how still can you make that target look in space? So, if your eye function is integrated perfectly, well, you can be running and bouncing up and down and that ball still looks still and clear in the, in, in, in the air. And that gives you the best chance to know exactly where it is and then you can put your hand in the right position, you can actually catch it. Most people will at one point or another have had the experience of running and when they're looking to catch that ball, it's bouncing around in space and it's like, I can't keep it still. Like I can't, I I can't focus on it. And if you've never had that, it's really difficult to, it's really difficult and challenging. And I can just remember it a couple of times being a baseball player when I was a kid and I didn't understand what was going on at the time, but now I understand like, ah, if the, if the, extraocular function wasn't integrated correctly well then my eyes wouldn't have been holding a stable gaze so that's the visual visual ocular visual ocular reflex was not integrated correctly at the time then my eyes are bouncing around not able to hold that target and so anything that you can do in warm-up that's going to drive that is going to be is going to be valuable so a couple of games that i really like to play is i will juggle and then throw throw balls at a rebounder and catch them in between whilst juggling so juggle three balls and then catch two, throw one, catch it back, and then go straight into the into the juggle. Then I'll start moving around and I'll start turning. So I've got to go from a 180-degree turn, catch the balls, juggle, throw, catch again. That takes a little bit of practice to get to. One that's really simple that's also valuable is you can get into quadruped on the ground and you can start on all fours. So start on hands, start on knees, and then you can hold one ball and literally just bounce the ball and change change hands. Like literally bounce the ball and then catch it with the other hand. Bounce the ball, catch it with the other hand. Bounce the ball, mm. catch it with the other hand. You can then take that up to knees off the floor. And again, you're really starting to fire up your core musculature. And then you can start to do it whilst you're moving. You can step forward and do it. Then you can actually start to throw the target so it goes against a wall and comes back. You know, you can integrate all these different ways. So the ball's coming at you, you know, via you know, different vectors. And 
brain's got to pay attention to all of that. And again, then it's got to obviously track the ball, but it's got to keep you stable. Then you, you know, you're firing up core musculature, you're coordinating, you're in like you're, you're activating gait circuitry. You're again ticking a lot of boxes. So I, I like those drills that tick a lot of boxes in in warm up. I don't necessarily go for a huge amount of specificity, but that sort of stuff's fantastic. And and that especially the one with the quadruped, you can you can start from a level that pretty much everybody can do. You know, and then you can you can just progress from there. Yeah, that sounds very similar to uh, I've done a variation of crawling and warm ups, and I had I wasn't thinking about the specific way the eyes are moving at all when I would have athletes do this, uh, but I just know it challenged them, and it was more interesting than a regular bear crawl. But they would have like a yeah, like a tennis ball or like a very small like light, um, not like a medicine ball, but just something they can toss between their hands while they're doing a bear crawl. So they have to like have it, and they're on three points of contact, and they have to if they're uh, left arm is on the ground they have to throw it up with their right hand and then they have to take a quick step forward and catch it with their left mm. as they're crawling and so i think that there's a lot of things going on there but i also i kind of want to do that and also watch their eye movements while they're doing that just to kind of see what's going on with that and and you know if the some of the adaptation there it would be kind of interesting too to do like kind of some of those movements without any sort of extra functioning like any eye functioning or problem solving and maybe do like a jump test after or before and after and have a group that did it, the extra type stuff and a group that didn't. Yeah, I was thinking too, like you said, the side to side is the extensor chain type thing. So that would be a, it'd be an interesting little study. I mean, if nothing else, I think it's just fun. It's just drives more attention. You're in the moment of it, but I hadn't thought about the eye movements of something like that as well. What you were describing reminded me of that one. Yeah, so that what you'd be looking at for something like that, if you want to try and target the extensor chain musculature, but you want to adapt it to the drill that you're doing, this is kind of the way functional neurology works in a lot of ways. And yes, you can be re- you can be way, way, way more specific than this, but you could be in that bear crawl doing the exercise that you're describing, and instead of just tossing the ball up and then catch it, take a quick step, catch it on the other hand, you could do that alongside a wall, and so the athlete has to throw it laterally, laterally it bounces off the wall, and they've got to catch it back with the other hand. Now that's going to drive lateral eye movement as you do that. So then, so then you're, you're preferentially biasing activation of those, of, of the extensor chain musculature via firing a, a functional neurologic reflex. So that would be one way you could drive a little bit more specificity into the warm up. As I said, I, in, in a warm up, I, I typically just go for general and go for big ticket items, try and tick as many boxes as possible. But that would be one way you could potentially try and drive more towards that, that specific output. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned big ticket items there. I'm curious your thoughts on. Maybe this is like a version of a question I was going to ask you, but I look at things. Yeah. I mean, my mind, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but my mind tends to work more uh, macro to micro. And so I always think about what's the big picture thing? Like if, if we could play a game and active, you know, get full activation, then, you know, let's, let's do it. But I think about sometimes, well, are there people who do you think, I'm sure there, there's people who need like the smaller stuff more, like the, the more like minute stuff, or I'm, I'm just curious on, like if you had an athlete who is like pretty well functioning, like that, you know, their system is pretty well functioning, everything's pretty solid. How would you approach them with some of these visual drill type warmups versus someone who like maybe someone who is less mobile, a little older, less mobile, maybe had like a lot of previous injury, you know, stuff like that. I'm just curious what your thoughts would be between the two in terms of um, how you'd scale up those challenges. Yeah. So look, my, my approach is maybe a little different because I'm, I'm sourcing information directly from the system itself. So I'm literally mm. having conversation with, with the nervous system, with the neurology, with the mind and asking it what it needs and then asking it how it needs it. 
and it'll it'll tell you it'll tell you every time and it's quite it's 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 quite fascinating because it's almost never what you think it's going to be you've got all your textbooks you've got everything you think you've learned and you're pretty sure you you, you know what you're supposed to give the system and then it tells you something different and then you get an amazing result so uh, again i'll give the example so my little boy is a, is a track athlete and this one came up a, a few weeks ago so there was a record that he was really keen to try and and hit and it got to the, it look it was everything lined up perfectly it got to the last week of the season so he's got some urgency there he's like this is my last chance in this age category to get, get this get you know to get this record and the, the guy who said it it's a 30 plus year record and the guy who said it went on to run internationally and I, I really want to I really want to check off that name and so he had a lot of motivation to do it and he's now really self-aware so he comes to me and just says like dad can I get some help I don't know what I need but I think I need something so this was the night before and to my mind, I'm thinking, okay, we probably want to do some stretches. You know, there's like, there'll be like, if we can biomechanically organize the system so it's just balanced, the output's going to be greater. Maybe we're doing some massage, but we'll see what else we need to do. We check in with his system and it literally just gave us, we just need to go to the goal of, of optimal nervous system output. And there was literally, for that, there was one belief that, went, that wanted to go in and then there was literally just putting what we call a direct charge or direct current, which you can run through your hands. You can literally just there's there's energy and there's flow that goes through your hands. And depending on depending on the angle that you place your hand on someone, then that deter that determines the energy flow that goes into that person. And so it's always very specific what it particularly wants. But he literally just don't needed that. He needed needed a belief and then a direct current. And then okay, mate, go to bed. And he was completely trusting of that. Got up in the morning and and smashed this thirty year old record by nearly three seconds, and was like, "Wow, okay, that's completely not what I thought the system would have needed." You know, I would have thought it needed some physical input, but you know, and I see that kind of thing all the time. So, my process would be to check in and ask, right, "What does the system need?" And typically, when you start with someone, it's going to be those bigger, more generalized stimuli mm-hmm. that you're putting in. And then, yes, once they've, you know, like in that scenario, it's just something small, something specific, and it just needs a little bit of a, a small correction and it can do amazing things. And so when you're working with athletes that are already finely tuned, then, yeah, you're probably not introducing some huge, you know, stimulus that's going to overturn the system and introduce a whole, you know, confusion where the brain's got to try and figure out a new program. And so, yeah, you might just be doing one eye drill or you might just be doing an isometric hold. You know, or you might just be literally firing a different reflex. It could be lymphatic reflex, could be, say, Chapman's reflexes. You can integrate that with deep tendon reflexes, which then will either relax or activate specific musculature. So, or you can reflexively activate, you know, specific musculature via deep tendon reflexes. It'll be whatever it needs to be. But as I said, my process is always just to check in and ask the system rather than impose what I think the system might need or ask the system what it needs and it'll always tell you. So if you, if you're, able to establish a dialogue or get feedback and there's a lot of people that work with biofeedback from the body if you work with that well then you can just begin to ask questions and it becomes a game of learning how to ask the right questions you know because you're dealing with a higher intelligence system and if you can learn how to ask the right questions well you can literally get the answers that you need yeah the with the yeah your son and and just knowing that he basically just needed to go out and race and didn't need any, any like extra like complex work there it does, mm-hmm. it gets me thinking about, like, I always think about what's the, like, what's the deepest exec- executive function you could go to? And I, I think Chris Corfus has been on the show, Sprint Coach, talking about, I think Douglas Heal, uh, therapist, had this idea of you just yelling, uh, yelling, I am the greatest before you do like a vertical jump or something like that. And I, I got on such a kick of doing that because 
I did it in the gym one day on the jump mat, and I went from like I like twenty eight nine to like thirty two five or thirty two nine. <laughs> like I literally improved like three over three inches in like instantly, and it was crazy because like when I. I, I, and it was funny too, cause like there was other people around in the weight room and I'm like, I am the great, and like I had to almost just like, you know, it's probably like very self, it's a very kind of self, selfish way of, <laughs> of speaking about things. But I mean, you could talk about like, you know, Michael, people would say like Michael Jordan was awesome, but he also like a, to- a toxic, like competitive attitude that made him amazing. I don't know, you know, how far I'd want to go into that one. But, um, anyways, I, I would think about, well, if just yelling, I am the greatest, boosted my jump by that much and it did the same thing with my sprints and then i i had a bunch of other athletes do it and that was kind of the joke for the year <laughs> and uh <laughs> but i was thinking well if i did it and it improved things that much i was like well what else would i need to do you know like i wouldn't want to spend time on other things but what's interesting is like you mentioned yeah different people need different things is athletes i found that in a group of swimmers i think it was about 50 50 with that group like about half of the group would say that and would do a little better if it was like a jump or we would have them on the power jumper or something like Kaiser where they give a, a wattage output. And then half of them, or some people had no improvement and then some people actually got worse. And I think it's because what they were saying didn't fit with their actual belief system. And you could tell it in their voice, like if you could kind of get the tone of their voice. And then those people would always do worse. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, you know, it makes me think, all right, well, there's something obviously in the psychology that could go somewhere else, but you know, maybe there's some other things there. And so yeah, all, all that to say is I, I, I guess I always feel like emotion and belief is like the deepest of all, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. If there was like a totem pole or a pyramid or something, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious of your take on that versus some of the other modalities. And then you, um, you had mentioned which one to go to based off of the athlete or the individual in front of you. Yeah. Awesome. So much to unpack here. So look, number one, what I figured out, saw experienced, you know, was that I started out just working with neurology, you know, and was you literally, you're flicking switches, you're pushing buttons mm-hmm. and you're like, you're working with the circuit board and you're changing things at the mother, at the motherboard. And then you see it, you change things at the level of the brain, then you see a change in the output. But then it, uh, it dawned on me that everything was literally, that thought energy was running below all of that. And it's literally thought energy was, was underpinning everything in the nervous system. It's like, okay, we need to start looking at beliefs. And it's like, and then this whole other rabbit hole, there's all this other stuff unfolded. And so what you're touching on there is amazing and it's beautiful and it, and it covers so much. So when you're saying with so this coach who's worked out, like if you shout, I am the greatest, right? A couple of things with that. Number one, I am the greatest. Yes, that's a positive statement that like your brain's going to, un- is typically going to understand that. Now we'll come back to whether, you know, how, again, what you talked on about with how effective that's going to be, because that's going to vary. But when you shout it, you think we just speak at this volume every day, right? You, most conversations are somewhere in this vocal range, you know, where you, like maybe it's a little softer, maybe it's a little louder, but your brain knows what your voice sounds like, right? So this is not novel. My brain is just listening. It's like, okay, now he's talking. I'm running the talking program. I don't have to pay attention to that. It knows what that is. So I, I'm not accessing my subconscious mind at this point. I'm just existing at the conscious level and I'm, just, and I'm, I'm, I'm not really influencing anything in the, in the subconscious. It's, my brain's not going to be suggestible. It's not going to be paying attention on that kind of level. If all of a sudden I shout at the top of my lungs and I scream, well, straight away my subconscious mm. is like, whoa, hang on, what's that? That's different. Whoa, whoa. And now I'm potentially suggestible, right? Again, it's novel. But when you shout something really, really loud, that is one way that you can potentially access the subconscious mind. So it's maybe not, it's perhaps not the most practical way to go about it. It's <laughs> perhaps not the most comfortable way to go about it. And for some people, 
drawing attention to yourself in that situation can then elicit a stress response. And so you could be negating the benefits, but that is one way that you could potentially access the subconscious mind. And so if you do it in a way that's joyous, like you're so you're describing you did in the gym and you're kind of laughing at yourself when you do it. And then, hey, all of a sudden, like I improved my vertical by three inches. Like, yeah, there's a reason for that. So if you've gone in and accessed the subconscious mind, subconscious mind now, and again, you have to appreciate thought that reaches the subconscious mind. Your subconscious mind is like a child's mind. It doesn't question. It doesn't argue. It doesn't think critically. It doesn't debate. If you can get a thought into the subconscious mind, it just gets accepted. That's now a belief. That's now a subconscious belief. So you're now holding a belief, I am the greatest, and you're in that moment, and then you go and express the program. You express the output for I am the greatest, and all of a sudden you get a, you get a PR. And so that's a really simple way of, of going about it, but I guess you need to always pay attention. I'm always saying this. when you What you talked about with the swimmers that, yeah, some of them it didn't really have an effect, some of them it had an effect, and some of them went worse. If you say something that we just described, you know, makes them feel stressed, makes them feel self-conscious, and then you know, they're having a stress response, well, then that's going, to drive the, that's going to drive the output down. If you say something, if you make a statement and it reaches the subconscious and it's wholly and completely incongruent, so the conscious statement is incongruent with the subconscious belief, well, you've literally got a clash. You've got a conflict there. So you've got one level of mind going, yes, nodding, yes, we're good. And the other level of mind shaking its head going, no, 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 not on board with this at all. And then you're having a stress response. So when the mind is misaligned, when conscious mind and subconscious mind are going in different directions, you're never going to get the greatest output. Like you would need to have conscious and subconscious aligned and then you'll get the greatest output. There's nothing in the way at that point. Now, I'll just describe a couple of, just a couple of examples because I use this all the time with people when I get to do movement and almost invariably at some point in the process belief will show up it'll show up like a new belief needs to go in and so i just put there was one i did the other the other week i put a a post out with a girl who wanted to do a squat and it came down to self-acceptance it came down to Mm. like actually just needing to be okay with the body be okay with who i am and what i am and this just is what it is and okay cool now that i accept it let's go and work with it and then amazing things things can change but she started out not even being able to do a half squat not even being able to get all the way down and for her, there were two beliefs that went in. There was a bunch of other things that we changed, but the two beliefs made a big difference. And we put in, I am strong and I'm a performance artist. And again, they mm. were very specific. That's what her system was telling us that she needed. But she went from not, and, and again, we probably in the one hour session, we probably did somewhere in the range of 10 to 15 squats total. But mm. she went from only being able to squat halfway down, not even halfway down. And she was restricted. She had tight calves, tight quads, couldn't balance, didn't have the strength output. She got down to just a couple of inches off the grass kind of thing. Like she was, mm. you know, down and it was and it was easy for her. And it was it's amazing to see that now. And for me, probably the best example I've I've ever seen of this, and it's so cool, is uh, this woman who is she's in her mid-70s and she's amazing. She's a weapon. She can do handstands at you know in, in her mid-70s, but she wanted to do a back bridge and she couldn't do this back bridge. She was absolutely nowhere near it, couldn't get the strength output, couldn't hold herself off the ground, could barely get the range. And we put her feet elevated up on a box, so that's going to reduce the range. That's going to make it easier. That's a regression. And she still couldn't get anywhere near it, but she was determined and wanted to. So there were a couple of things that came up. But again, belief came up, and it was something very, very specific. So we were sort of, we're sort of going through this questioning process, and it, it guided us to this photo of her granddaughter. And she had just been talking about her granddaughter looking at her in starry-eyed wonder about grandma can do handstands. And then it was, we worked out like, oh, you need to see yourself the way your granddaughter sees you. You need to Hmm. see yourself with awe and wonder. Okay, 
right, what do you need to be able to see yourself in awe and wonder? And so then it came back, well, Olympic gymnast, the Olympic gymnast, that's the highest level of function and output in her mind. It's like, okay, so the belief that went in, and again, there was a bit of a process to get there, but the belief that went in was I am as, as strong, as supple and flexible as an Olympic gymnast. And we put that in and she literally got her feet up on the box and just put her hands up onto the ground, on the ground behind her head and pushed herself straight up. And it was like, wow, that's amazing. And her whole spine articulated more. She had way more range. Her shoulders opened up. But it was literally putting in this specific belief. So for me, I might have thought I'd need to put in something like you're more flexible. Or I might have thought you need to be, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a rhythmic gymnast. To me, they're the most flexible and bendy people, you know. And, mm. and so my mind was running through what I thought she needed. But what she actually needed when we took the time to ask and find out was just something very different and very specific. And then you get an incredible result. So if you can actually, you can always go with something, you can go with something generic and you may have an effect. You might be eliciting that stress response and get a negative effect. But when you think from the conscious level of mind, you're only working through what's in your memory and experience and you're just guessing. So you're doing the best that you can. You can have an effect. And if you do something positive, yes, you'll see a change in the output. And that is amazing. But if you can actually get the information out of the mind as to what it truly needs, where you can get this incredible result. And it's, and it's, it's, I find it amazing because, like I said with my little boy, it's almost never what you think it's going to be. Yeah. It's always something different. So it's, it is a higher intelligence system and trying to understand that higher intelligence from the lower intelligence, the conscious mind, we don't fully understand that. We don't fully grasp that. So as best you can, where you can pay attention and listen to what it's trying to tell you, then you can get amazing results. Today's episode is also brought to you by Strength Coach Pro. Strength Coach Pro is an online digital training portal where personal trainers, strength coaches, and gym owners can create training programs and distribute them to their clients both in the in-person space and online. The software is fast and versatile. You can quickly tell that it was created by a coach for coaches. One of the best things about it is that there's no recurring fees. There is one fee and you get lifetime access to the program and to check out what Strength Coach Pro can do for you head to strengthcoachpro.com. That's strengthcoachpro.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's, that's one of the just amazing things about working with individuals in any capacity. And then what I do so much of is spend time just watching high-level athletes and how they, the totality of their being, their subconscious mind has just found out a way to solve a movement problem. Though often it's related mm-hmm. to sprinting, jumping, throwing, things like that. But I'm always just blown away. I was like, it is amazing all the joints, the asymmetries, the different elements uh, that the brain is putting together here. And it's it's so cool in that perspective. But then as I've gone through things and as I've grown as a coach, I've realized that it's also really important. And maybe even back to those swimmers, like the swimmers who didn't improve when they yelled, I am the greatest. Like like you said, you have to unpack things and you have to look at Richard Ashavis, who was on this show. He talked a lot about mental emotional states as it relates to training and he had said something about i think asking it was like something like you need to ask five whys before you can get to the core of something or there's something like that and it makes me think about you asking your client going into like to do the back bend asking questions on like what motivates her what is important to her it makes me think about nick winkleman talking about um, promoter learning like when you're like let's say you're training a group of youth athletes and you're trying to figure out ways to communicate with them on the skills you're trying to coach like find out what they're into like what movies do they like to watch you know like what's meaningful and important to them and i think for me for so long i came from a very 
I think a lot of coaches start here, like a very self-centered approach. This worked for me. This is important for me, you know, like, and mm-hmm. I even think too about like for the, I am the greatest thing when I was uh, a high jump was my, my best event in track and field. And for any of my events, really though, I always did the best when there was a lot of people around and they would do like a big power clap for you. Like they'd all start clapping in sequence. And then mm-hmm. as you ran up, they would start clapping faster. And I liked that. I liked being a center of attention. <laughs> I do like, I do feel like I'll say it. I, I like that. But I also did like, like the energy of the group. I've always liked people getting together and where there's energy and there's like, there's excitement and there's happiness and joy there. Like that's always been something too. But I think about there's also track athletes like high jumpers who don't like that. They'll they'll actually put their finger to their lips before they mm-hmm. go. They're like, no, don't do that. So you know, and I was I was always wondering. I was like, why don't you want that? Like, is that that helped me? You know, and it would be interesting to ask to go through the whys and to go through their process. I guess there's a thought too. Well, everyone should say I'm the greatest or like the power clap. But it's like no, we're all different. There's all something that drives all of us, or there's different meaningful things for all of us, and. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be fun if there wasn't that it wasn't that way. <laughs> yeah, it's the interesting thing I find is that you can you can you can change all of it. You can you can literally change all of it. So, and this is the thing with the athlete: if the the athlete just wants the gold medal, or they just they just you know want the trophy, they just want the win, they just want you know the success. You know, there there be something in there that they're driven by. It's usually results focused, but yeah, the joy is definitely a part of it. And if if you offer an athlete something that, that ticks one of those boxes for a big why, well, they'll generally be open to it. Like, you know, if you tell someone, hey, listen, we can, I can get you an extra percent here, you know, extra percent improvement. Like, okay, cool. Is it legal? Yes. I mean, what do I need to do? Like, how do we get there? And so for, for athletes to get buy-in from athletes, if you can, if, if you've got something to offer, that's generally not too hard. If they, if they believe in what you're, what you're doing, then yeah, to get that buy-in is, 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 is not too challenging. But what I found is that like, that athlete who says like, no, 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 I, I'm a shush kind of guy. Well, if you can demonstrate to them, you say like, hey, you know, are you open looking at this? Because if you take that extra energy on board, well, then like all this is right now is this, you're having a stress response. Like you've just got this organized in your mind that that energy gives you a stress response. So you're actually expending energy to create some kind of boundary, a defense. And remember, all defenses have to weaken you. Any wall, any boundary, anything you put up as a defense has to weaken you because you're diverting energy and resources to concentrate no i need to keep the, the crowd quiet and it might not seem like much because you've rehearsed it and you've just made it normal so you don't notice that you're losing something but if you're having to push back against anything well you're literally giving energy and resources away so if the if there's energy in the stadium if there's energy in the crowd and that's the environment in which you compete well then if there was some way that you could be okay with just harnessing that and just accepting it you don't have to drive the clap but you could just accept what's there well you're no longer diverting energy or resources towards this defense or towards this protection strategy. And then you can just go and do your thing. And it's just literally the way that it's organized in the mind, you know, and it's like, you can just change the stress responses because if you can change the subconscious mind, then you change the perception and the perception is the interpretation that's giving you the stress response. All of that stuff is changeable. And, and it's just, it's just worth looking like, okay, where's the greatest output? How are we going to get the greatest output? You know what? I'm open to looking at whatever it is that I need. And this is, true in any facet of life, anything you're trying to improve either in the sporting field or emotionally or in relationships or in corporate environments, if you are that open mind, well, then you're open to question. You're open to looking at everything. Everything's up for question. You know, then it's not like, okay, I've got this good thing that I do. Don't touch that. Don't touch the good thing that I do. Let's look at the things that I think I don't do so well. And it's like, no, let's question all of it because that good thing, how do you know it's the best? How do you know that can't actually be improved? 
It's like just be the open mind and then like you can literally, you can change everything. So it's just, it, it really is being willing to just step back and just recognize that, you know what, I, I wouldn't know the first thing. I wouldn't know the first thing of what my mind's truly capable of. And I'm open. I'm open to looking. Just that first step, that opens the door. You know, then, you know, then even the things that you've got set up in your mind that are really good and you see as your strengths, well, now you're open to actually improving those as well. You know, and there's potentially there's benefit left on the table there. Yes. Scott, when you um you were talking about this a little bit, and I, I had this written down as a question. I, I mean, you covered a little bit of it already, but I'm curious, like if someone has uh, like a subconscious mental block holding them back, like their conscious mind knows what to do. Like, I know what to do. I just can't do it because something's holding me back. And maybe a simple thing is, I mean, for me, that happens in golf all the time. <laughs> but even, even in, in, I was always like, I, just using myself as an example, I, like in basketball, I was always very up and down. It was very setting dependent. But a lot of times, like just subconscious, my subconscious would overwhelm me. I would just drop the ball a lot and make very easy mistakes. And I couldn't, it's like, I could not change it. So what are some, like if someone has a subconscious block holding the back and their conscious mind is on board, what are some uh, avenues that you could take to start exploring that uh, from any level? You know, maybe it's um, from more of a visualization or something that's more physical in nature, neurological in nature. Curious on some elements that you look at to address that. I'm sure this could be a whole mm. show too. So, <laughs> the big yeah. question. Yeah, look, again, my process mm. is very different. So, I'll just I'll give you, try and give you 10 seconds of that and then we'll dive into a couple of things that other people, that people you can do on your own. And so, just understand, except whether it's been, whether it's something you're aware of or whether it's something you've just wanted to say, no, that could not be possible. I work with people all the time and you can assess them in movement. You can assess them while they're moving. Like you literally get, I can get, get feedback on what's going on in their neurology and get feedback on what's going on in their mind and what's giving them stress and what's okay while they're in movement, while they're doing their activity, or perhaps while they're just sitting on a, in a chair or on a couch and visualizing and going through it. So this is the really important thing to pay attention to is the brain cannot tell the difference between a real stimulus or a vividly imagined stimulus. Like mm. it's, it's, it's exactly the same to the brain. And if you're prepared to allow that to be true, well, then you can change everything in that visualization. And then if once you have that belief, if that's in your subconscious mind that you've actually gone and changed that, and if you change it in the imagination, it's exactly the same as doing it in real life, as long as your subconscious mind is okay with that, well, then when you go to the real scenario, there's going to be little to no, no stress response left. Right. If you create resistance against that, if you hold a belief like, no, that couldn't be the case, there's no way I can't allow that. That's just literally you making the resistance and saying no. So then when you go and do the guided visual motor imagery or you just do the visualization or you try and change things and get just become at peace with the process in the imagined scenario. Well, if at a deep level you're resisting that, well, it's not it's not going to work. We say nothing is going to overpower your will. Like your your will is infinitely powerful, and nothing is going to go against that. So if you decide to block the process, then absolutely you will. So for some people, the first step is just going to be being okay with the fact that there's more possible. That there's that the mind can do more, the brain can do more, and who knows how limitlessly powerful I am. So just being okay with that opens the door to actually make change at that level of of, of visualization. And then once you understand that the brain doesn't know the difference between a real or imagined stimulus, well, then you can go through those scenarios and you can literally, you can, if you can create, generate the emotional state that goes with those scenarios. And again, it doesn't have to be the exact same emotion. So I never won a gold medal at the Olympics. So I couldn't tell you what it feels like to win a gold medal at the Olympics, but 
you know, I won some gold medals and I can imagine winning at the Olympics would just be just unbelievable with, you know, 80,000 people in the stands all screaming and cheering and, like, I could imagine the, 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 the elevated emotions there would be something off the charts, right? Now, for me to go and change whatever it is that I might need to that allows me to feel that, so I wouldn't need to find the emotional state, the precise emotional state of being or the, the level of emotion that I might feel in an 80,000-person stadium who are all screaming and cheering, you know, in the middle of my event. I'm, I wouldn't need to find that level of elation, but I would need to find a connection to it. If I can find the emotion to some percentage, to some degree, I'm doing the same thing. So, and because I'm activating whatever the stress, whatever the limiting belief, I'm, 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 I'm laying that bare. I'm, I'm, I'm opening up and actually allowing myself to look at it. And falseness in the mind, and this is a limiting belief. Falseness in the mind, which is a limiting belief, is just something that is not true. And I explain this to the my soccer team that I coach, like a bunch of 10, 10 11 year old kids, and just say whenever they express a limiting belief, we say, you know what that is. That's just something that's in your mind that's just not true that holds you back. That's all it is. So it's in your mind, it's not true, and it holds you back. What do you want to do with it? And it's like, and hmm. typically the kids are like, ah, oh, well, that doesn't sound helpful. Okay, well, let's just get rid of it. And kids are open <laughs> to that sort of stuff. But if you can lay the limiting belief bare, if you can lay the falseness bare just by accessing that emotional state, well, in that visualization, you have the opportunity to change it. And then there'll be any number of different processes that you could go about. You could very easily shout out from the couch while you're in that visualization, I am the greatest. That that could potentially work for you. Like if you've noticed that's had an effect, you could be sitting on a couch on your own doing a visualization of you doing your event in that moment where you typically have found the stress response or you've found the limitation. And when you find the emotional state of being that is just that is there that would that, that you would experience when you're at that highest level of output, highest level of performance. And again, it doesn't have to be the full emotion, but it needs to be mm. a connection to it. If you find the emotion, well, then you could change the belief. And one way that we've discussed would be shout at the top of your lungs, I am the greatest, you know, or shout whatever it is that you believe that you need. Because you know when you scream really loud, your mind's going to be paying attention because it's a novel stimulus. So you're accessing the subconscious. It's going to be suggestible. Another way to do it would be when you're in hypnagogia, like first thing in the morning when you're first waking up, still, still a little bit sleepy or at the end of a meditation, or, you know, as you're drifting off to sleep. There are ways that you can access the subconscious mind. If you've never trained, never practiced, don't know how to do it other ways. But that would be really powerful. That would be really, really powerful to actually get yourself to that state of being where you're seeing what's going on. Brain doesn't know the difference. As far as the brain's concerned, it's real. Hmm. And as far as the subconscious mind's concerned, it's happening right now because time does not exist in the subconscious mind. It's always present. So if you're visualizing yourself in your event, and you're doing it vividly, well, the brain thinks it's real, the mind thinks it's now, you have the opportunity to change something. You need to pay attention to that. Like, it's that you're not just doing airy-fairy woo-woo visualizations. Brain thinks that's real. Mind thinks that's now. If you want to make change, there's your opportunity. So then you could you could potentially have chambered up some different beliefs. You could potentially have chambered up um, some different visualizations about the way you're going to go about things. But again, if you are wholly believing in the process that you can make change, well, then you'll be open to it and you'll experience change when you go there. So I, I maybe do things a little bit differently as in we're going in and we're assessing and then we're just, again, asking the system, right, what do you need in this scenario? But I see that work all the time where we'll change it in the clinic, we'll change it literally in the clinical setting and then the athlete or the person goes out and, then, and the report I get back is like, oh, like, it was just easy. Oh, wow, okay. I'd, yeah, I was fully expecting it to be there, but it wasn't. I was expecting the block to still be there, but it wasn't. And, and again, brain doesn't know the difference between real or imagined and time doesn't exist in the subconscious mind. So when you pay attention to those things, then you realize you've got this amazing opportunity for change. 
whenever you choose. Scott, would you say that you that to make a change that there needs to be at least some emotion that comes out in, in that like mental visual space? Or I'm just curious what your take is there. I think it's helpful. If you don't know, if you don't know how to work with the mind, you don't have specific techniques, then yes, emotion is one way that you can absolutely go about it. So, you know, to say like that, you know, repetition plus emotion, you know, like you just, you, you make this, you know, long-term memory or information and emotion makes long-term memory. So it's like, if you can introduce something new and then you add emotion to it, like, yes, well, then there's a connection to that subconscious. But so there's any number of different ways you could get to the subconscious mind, but emotion w- would be one way about it would be one, one way to get there. But we were just talking a moment ago about using the emotion to access a, a stressful situation or a situation where you've experienced a performance block. So you could do that, but then you might need, if you're looking at emotion, you would then need to pay attention to, oh, what's the emotion that I really believe I need to feel? Okay, because when I go there and I'm in that 80,000 crowd stadium and I notice that my legs go a little bit weaker, I don't run as fast or jump as high, what's the emotion I would need to feel and can I connect that and feel that now? And that may be something you may need to have rehearsed before, so you can just access it. You can access it in that moment. But emotion is definitely one way that you can bring about a change. It's not a process that I follow specifically, just because it's probably it's just a little bit slower. It's maybe a little bit slower. It's a little bit less precise, and I don't know exactly what the person's feeling, so I can just I can do it otherwise. But if you're going on your own, well, you know what you're feeling, and then if you if you are really confident that the emotion that you think you need is the one that's going to give the greatest output, then by all means, go and play with it. But just explore because, again, do that process, use the emotion. If you notice you don't get the result, it's not that the process didn't work. You, you, might, have not, you might not have chosen the specific emotion that you need. Come back and try with a different emotion. You know, it's exactly like we said before about the belief. You can give the subconscious mind what you consciously think the subconscious mind needs, but when you consult with the higher intelligence, it's wanting something completely different. So it would be the exact same thing with the emotion. Just try. Go trial and error. And if the, if the emotion that you put in doesn't give you the, the, the performance output that you're looking for, then come back and try with a different emotion because, you know, you trial and error, eventually you'll get it right. Yeah, definitely makes sense. I just got one more question for you here. And it's something I, I was mm-hmm. thinking about as you were talking about like the novelty. And I thought I was, I found it interesting to like shouting actually being a novelty stimulus as well. And I was thinking about even like, like the claps and you could do, I wonder if the regular power clap got boring. Like some jumpers would do like a like a weird clap. They'd come up with their own like da da da. Like it'd be like an it'd be like an offbeat kind of clap. But it, you know, I, I so I think about that. But one thing I've been into uh, that's really been helpful for me, and, and if nothing else, interesting uh, is doing. Uh, and, and I've done infused like music, and uh, especially when I'm doing something that's more rhythmic in nature, like running would be the <laughs> the something that is a very easy example there. But I use like, uh, I have an app called Rock My Run that does a very specific, you can set to any BPM you want, like 120, 130, whatever. And it's like, it's just music that is that BPM. But I find that in terms of like, for me, if I'm doing like tempo sprints on the track and I'm trying to find a rhythm or even just going out for a run and there's just the novelty of it, I'm curious if there's anything uh, or you have any thoughts on like a beats per minute, like a metronome, uh, music as a metronome. And anything that can go with that and performance. <laughs> so, music as a metronome, I think that absolutely the energy that you get through music, the frequency that you get through music, I think is multi layered. Like, I think there's just more going on than just the, the you know the volume yeah. or the the tempo, because music brings emotions as well. It's exactly the same thing that if you when you play when you play music, it, it, you don't have to go very far speaking to people about music to say like, oh, you know, music's really powerful and bring up memories and bring up emotions and connecting you with former states of being. And so 
if you can have music that connects you with a, with a high emotional state, then, I mean, there's your motivational, inspirational music. But same thing, if you can layer that, then we're starting to talk, look at this neurologic stacking. If you can layer that with something that's at a faster tempo that just subconsciously gets you moving at a faster rhythm, then, yeah, absolutely, you could, you could get a performance output improvement. We have a joke here in our house. My, so my little boy's a runner. My little girl is not, and she is absolutely adamant that it's impossible to run without Spotify Premium. Like, sorry, <laughs> just it, it can't happen. Um, and so that that music is actually really powerful for her. You know, I mean, she's not a runner, but when she when she plays music, she can go out and she can run five k's, she can run six seven k's, she can you know she can go and actually do it. But I think you know the music is a distraction for her. You know, and I'm sure that's the same for a lot of people that it can be it can literally take you away from the stress that you're feeling. So it kind of depends on. What is it that you need? And again, like mm. that question we've we've been saying the whole time is you need to come back and ask them on like, what do you need? So if what you're dealing with is trying to overcome the pain or the discomfort or just, you know, being in that hurt locker, well, if there's something like music that takes you away from that, then fantastic. If there's a tempo that works for you, because again, you could be using it primarily as a distraction, but then in that distraction where you're paying attention, there's a tempo running that just gets your legs ticking over faster. And if the music connects you with an emotional state of joy, well, then again, the effects will be multi-layered. So I think there's a number of things that you could pay attention to there. And you then may- maybe you're using apps. I said, I'm not familiar with that app, but maybe using apps could, you know, that could select the, the, the right music for you would be, would be amazing. But if you're aware of a bunch of songs that you like, and then you can be aware of which songs in there run at a faster tempo. And then if you're aware of, does this song make me more present or does it make me more distracted? Mm. Which one do I need? I guess these are all considerations that you could be you could be considering looking at with music and you know and and overlaying that on you know on training yeah I, I like what you said about like it, it is for me it is really helpful, but I do think about like I shouldn't need this like you talked about like a distraction <laughs> like if you're using it to escape from and I know there's research that shows that just music outside of the beats per minute or anything like that it decreases perception of pain. But at the same time, like, I shouldn't need this to go. And honestly, to be my best, I feel like I should be able to go and generate that same feeling or ideally I could generate that same feeling or maybe even internal metronome if I'm you know, looking to use it for that type of tool or any sort of stride rate thing or you know, every, mm-hmm. every step rate. But yeah, do you feel like, I mean, do you feel like that? I, I mean, I guess you kind of maybe said it with like, you know, if you, but what's your take on that? Like, it, and people talk about that too with like AirPods. Like, people always have to work out the AirPods. They always have to have AirPods in. But I feel like you should be able to take those out and get, like, hopefully replace whatever you had with just natural of your own mind, um, you know, generation of energy in the workout on some level. Yeah, look, my, my takes may be a little different now. And it's probably changed in the, in the last, you know, 12 months, I guess. But it's the thing that I see all the time is where you'll get the greatest output is it's it's from acceptance. Mm. It's from and again, and this will work at the highest of levels. If you can be that athlete who's just deep in the hurt locker and just says, you know, you know what, this just is what it is. I just got, I just got to get on with it. Like this is this is just it. And you're in, you've you've found a state of acceptance. It, once you're in a state of acceptance, you you can achieve anything because it, now everything just is what it is. You're not judging anything. So unless you're an athlete that specifically, you know, cannot train, is not allowed to perform or not allowed to do, you you know, do your event, you know, with, you know, AirPods in or you're not allowed to compete with music or that's just not, you know, that's not going to be helpful for you, you know, in your moment of performance and you're only doing the exercise specifically for this, you know, competitive performance, well, then, yeah, you could look at it and say, well, okay, I am going to need to do this without the music. But 
do I need to judge myself? Do I need to say like, no, this, like I shouldn't, I shouldn't have mm. to do this because even just that it's, it, it sounds light. It, it doesn't sound like it's a serious thing, but it's still a layer of judgment that you're placing mm. on the self, which is going to have a negative, a, a negative effect. So on some level, if I put this, the AirPods in and the music and the beat and the rhythm, you know, and the memories that I'm getting from it or the distraction that it's giving me, if that's giving all of that's giving me a benefit, but then on some level I'm judging myself that like like I really shouldn't be doing this. I should have this out and run. Well, again, then I would be negating that on some mm. level. So just uh, whatever you do, look to come to that state of acceptance. Look to just be okay. Look to be okay with it. You know, and you could literally be using that and saying, okay, this is absolutely fine for training. And then yeah, I'll practice a bunch of, of, of game day scenarios where I'm training without the you know the, the music, so it's not it's not a complete novel stimulus when I go to competition. But, you know, maybe even that, maybe even that's different. Maybe because when you take the music out, maybe that actually makes your brain pay, pay more attention. Mm. I, I couldn't say that's not something that I actually, you know, I don't have anecdotal experience of that one. But it, it would make sense that if you trained every day with music by taking the music out, is there an emotional vacuum? Maybe, maybe not, but definitely novel. It'll definitely mm -hmm. be different. So you, you're making your brain pay attention. Maybe you get a greater output if you did that. that again, that would be something you'd probably want to, practice over a few training cycles first to work out whether your athlete wants to actually go down that path and do that. But I just think there's a lot, there's a lot to pay attention to, you know, and that judgment is actually one of them. You know, it's, it's such a simple thing. So much changes from, from acceptance. As I said, that girl that I talked about with the squat, that was the first thing that came up, self-acceptance and so often in movement and strength output, it's just be okay with what is. And once you're okay with what is, well, hey, now we can change anything. Yeah. The judgment too makes me even think about in uh, training, there's a, a a book that really, really impacted my view on training called Easy Strength that was written, shoot, over 10 years ago now by Dan John and Pavel Satsaline. And it was in the book, it talks about they, you never want to really take a set close to failure. And that will help you recover better to do the training again. If you want to do it tomorrow, you can do it again tomorrow and be much better for it. And I think about that, like if you take a set to failure or close to it, like the bar is slowing down that's probably going to be met with some judgment of some level, like, oh, I couldn't have done another rep, you know, like, mm -hmm. and I wonder, and I wonder how much that plays a role in, you know, what, if you didn't recover as well outside of some other physiological elements or stress level elements. So, yeah, I'm always, I, that, that uh, concept really primed me to think of how we judge ourselves in, in training. And I suppose, yeah, like if you feel like, oh, I'm not good because I need, oh, I need the music to go run and feel, you know, feel good or something like that, you know, I, I could definitely see that as something. And I think I've kind of thought about a similar thing. Like I've I've run without it and I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. This is fine. It's more fun to run with it. It's kind of a different, My it's not actually my primary, like running is not my primary thing I'm training for. It's just for mm. recovery. So I'm always thinking, well, how can I make this day the most fun I possibly can? <laughs> and so, yeah, I'll do it and run in the creek and like jump on the rocks and listen to music. And it's like, it's a great recovery day. But yeah, maybe if it was my my actual sport, maybe I would try to find a different maybe i would maybe i would approach it a little bit differently but for the sake of it yeah not not carrying the judgment with that i i definitely i've been thinking about that as well on some level so it's cool how you said mm. that i think you've actually gone full circle which is awesome because it's like exactly what you're talking about they're saying if you were talking about that easy training and saying if you take a sec close to failure well then yeah you would potentially introduce some level of judgment maybe well i think that speaks back to what you're saying at the, you know, at the start of like, you know, getting coaches to pay attention to like, you know, well, where's your positive statement? Like, how are you making the positive association at the end of that rep or just being aware as the coach, mm -hmm. if you're going to take your athletes where you're doing trainings, where you're doing sessions that are coming closer to, you know, to that failure. And the, as you say, the bar's slowing down. Well, then you would need to be making a positive association with the output and saying like, you know, that was amazing. That was awesome. That was like top, top, top level yeah. performance. And so 
maybe it's an I am the greatest, maybe it's like that was the most beneficial thing. Whatever the statement, whatever the idea, whatever the emotion that might need to be might need to go in. Because again, like and and I see this all the time in recovery. So I this is my little boy comes I use him as an example because I you know, I see him every day. But he comes and asks me nearly every night for dad, I think we need to do some recovery, you know, and what you can, the, the speed and the rate that you can recover from physical exercise is just far greater than, you know, I think what most people are aware because, you know, if you train, you, you're obviously, you, you've got, there's wear and tear on tissues. And if you then just do a cool down, you have an ice bath or you do any of your conventional means and methods, well, yeah, like you'll have an effect and you'll, you'll recover a little bit faster. But if you put the mind at a state of peace, well, everything's repairing. Like mm-hmm. you're putting the, you're bringing the brain back to homeostasis, bring, your autonomic nervous system back to homeostasis, just put everything at peace. The body repairs itself like really quick. So if you were to reduce the wear and tear by making a positive emotional association with that max, max, max output, well, you're going to increase your recovery speed. So like what you were saying, if you, you know, if, if you go close to that failure and you're typically aware that that maybe blunts your training, you know, the next day or the day after, well, if you were able to introduce a stimulus at the end of that set that, you know, just put the mind at ease, put the body mm. at ease, brought you back to homeostasis, you know, more quickly, you're going to recover faster, you know. And it's like I remember watching documentary on Ben Johnson back in the day and the thing that he was saying was like I remember him saying that the max, max, max training sessions that he used to do, you know, in a week he'd say he could do lift heavy, heavy, heavy weights, do three sessions a week, three different sessions a week. But he said on the drugs – he could get somewhere like between, you know, six to eight of those sessions yeah. in a week, you know, and it's like because his body's just repairing so much faster. So if there's a way that you could take a step towards that emotionally and via, you know, subconscious thought, well, that's worth investigating. You know, like if, if you can punch out an extra session in the week because you're recovering faster, that's an advantage. So you're worth paying attention to. Yeah, I know there's there's been research. Um, it was a placebo. It's kind of a funny study. They did. A, it was like they had a group that they told they were on steroids or something. But they weren't. <laughs> and they, they actually made really good gains, like w- above a control group. Well, they were told that. But then as soon as they realized they weren't, all their gains like went away. It disappeared, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure. I thought that was kind of funny. But, yeah, I'm sure we could talk about that, uh, go into that as well. But I know I've... Uh, We've gone through quite a bit of information and um, it's been great, Scott. I, you know, all this stuff too is like kind of a recharge for all my, for my mind on having these topics in mind throughout training and my coaching. And so it's great having you on the show, man. Uh, is there anything that, uh, any recent happenings or anything you have on your plate that you'd like to share at conferences or products or anything like that or any of your upcoming whereabouts before we get out of here? Oh, man. So I still see people one to one. I'm doing group sessions with people now and I'm sort of, putting some courses together, it's, you know, putting, putting some courses together, basically just sort of, you know, create freedom in the mind kind of thing. And then once you've got freedom in the mind, you can apply that to whatever your, your chosen pursuit is. And, and if I can just touch on that last point, he goes, because again, this kind of speaks to it when you're setting up, because the mind is just limitlessly powerful. Exactly what we just did, where we just, we gave an example talking about placebo and then we kind of laugh about it and go, oh, <laughs> these guys, they thought they were on steroids, so they went better, but then, you know, it turned out they got fooled, they got played and they, they weren't actually that good. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of, to me, that's kind of the way society looks at the placebo. Yeah. You know, like people look at the placebo and go like, you, it was all in your head. You got fooled. You got played. Like, no, the, the placebo is what you are. That's you being at your limitless best. Like, you want to pay attention to that because you can just do that. You can put that in. You can have that every day. You can be the placebo. Like, mm-hmm. you can literally give the mind what it needs to be that greatest output. And it's like, no, you want to learn how to harness that. You want to learn how to, you know, pay attention to that. It's like, 
Put yourself on mental steroids, you know, if yeah, that's, if yes. that's the case, like you know, these imaginary <laughs> yes. placebo mental steroids. And, you know, that like d- being able to do that, that's like there's huge performance gains in that, you know, and it's just it's worth paying attention to. So I think any time when the word placebo comes up and we find ourselves kind of laughing at it, you know, or, or, or joking or saying someone got fooled or it's like, you know, like it was just a placebo, like, no, no, the placebo is a window in, into the limitlessness of who you truly are. You know, and it's like if you want to start investigating that and tapping into that, well, man, there's like there's improvement that's still that's left on the table for you. So, yeah, I guess the stuff that I'm doing, like this, you know, course in freedom and doing the group work and stuff, you, you know, you're just up leveling the mind. So it's like, and then you can turn that towards whatever you want to do. So if if that holds an interest for people, then yep, you know, happy to connect and talk. But man, I'm really grateful just to get to be here and have the conversation and. You know, thanks for throwing a whole bunch of, you know, left field questions that, you know, at us that we're able to, you know, get an answer for. Yeah, for sure. Well, hey, it was my pleasure. And yeah, I totally agree with what you said at the end too, by the way. I think it's, my joke is almost more like just thinking about what the guys, the looks on everyone's faces when they were told you weren't actually at the steroids, but they got so much stronger, you know, like what was going through their head. But I, I totally agree. As long as they were believing the physiology adapted. And I think that's the, mm. the part to remember for sure. So anyway, Scott, uh, awesome having you on, man. And yeah, thank you again. I much appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. If you enjoyed the show, you can help us out by leaving us a rating on Spotify, iTunes, whatever you're listening to. I definitely appreciate that. We'll see you next week with another great guest.